Have you ever been to the perfect party? Left wondering what the magic ingredients were other than having the snapper and me in attendance? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Cheers. <laughs> I, well, you know what? I was on The Price is Right once. Were you? But this is not The Price is Right. This is Shaken and Stirred. Come on down, Tom Astor, my co-host. I haven't watched The Price is Right, so I don't know the form- formula. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And <laughs> our guest today is a self-described insatiable people person responsible for creating and producing and hosting some of the best events I have personally ever attended. He's a consummate convener. Hosting soirees and salad toss-offs, you want to know more about that, at his home in New York City with a guest list that includes world leaders, A-list actors, millionaires. But the star guest that tops them all is his Indian mother. He's on the board of Planned Parenthood, Federation of America. Welcome, Manish Goyle. Thank you. Welcome. Nice to be here, I think. It's, I'm not sure. <laughs> you'll soon find out. I didn't realize you started. You started, yeah. Have I started? Is that it? The thing is, I'll never end. Okay. Exactly. That's the point. Now, Tom, what are we drinking? We are drinking a, a pineapple and rum, a pina colada, basically. And this is... Uh, In homage to Manish's company, which is called Pineapple Co. That's Co. it. Pineapple, yeah, pineapple Co. Co. Well, it's, we're very original here on Stone Shaken exactly. and Stone. Basically, no we couldn't think of anything else. We, we could, but we've been got in the past. We've been so technical and so historical and been so factual that actually, just why not name it after you? You know, just a reference. Let's just go real to, basic. To, just go real so basic. What's in here again? Sorry, pineapple and rum. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so it's kind of like almost a pina colada, but not quite. But not quite. And not shaken. There you go. Okay. Quite frankly, he's incredibly lazy, and I forgive you. But actually, I must say, it tastes fantastic. It's actually pretty good. It's actually well very done, nice. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for not much can I, ingenuity. Can I, well can I go now? I yeah. thought that was hugely. In- I showed, you know, so we're talking about pineapples here. Pineapple Co. Why the pineapple? I mean, Manish, I, I get it. You're Indian, but really, <laughs> I mean, isn't the pineapple the sign of a swinger? So actually, is it the sign of a swinger? It is. It's is it? Really? Oh yeah. It's, well, it's now, everywhere all the more you go. I'm glad I th- named my company that. You mean you didn't even know? Oh, that's not true. No, I did not know that. On a Tuesday, if you put a pineapple in your shopping cart and you go around the, the, the grocery store, people know that you're a swinger. I think you just made that up. No, no, no. He knows it works. I as well. swear. He, he knows does. it works. I swear to God. Listen, <laughs> I moved to Woodstock for exactly. a reason. Yeah. It may just be a Woodstocking you're thing. Like, Chrissy, you're busy on Tuesday, right? So you just walk around. If you ever go to someone's house and they have a pineapple on their front mat or a pineapple in their foyer, the, the entrance of the house, it means they're swingers, by the way. Okay, by the way, that's actually not true because. The no, that no, no, it is true. <laughs> well, it and you true, happen actually. to have one in your house. Yeah, exactly. Is that? Hello. I have one prominently displayed. No, but truly, the reason that I named my company Pineapple Co. is because maybe it's very akin to what you're saying. Pineapples are the fruit of hospitality, of welcome, Hello. of graciousness. Why do you think? Um, and so now I know. Gracious host. Exactly. Share, share other, everything. Other people's Come partners. on in. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I, I, I just love what it you stood for. I did, I did not realize quite what it stood for, but now I do. Good to know. So, are you going to be changing the name? I'm not. Of Pineapple fact, Co. I'm, I'm leaning in. I'm, 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 we are definitely Pineapple Co. Very proudly. So, um, in all its iterations. So, I started off even in your intro. I talked about your mum. 
Yes. Your mum is a pivotal person in your life. And, and, and all mums should be pivotal people in their sons' lives. But she plays a real main role. I, I mean, and I love her myself. Yes, I mean, she's, I she makes me special things. She, yes. You always tell me she misses me if I don't show up. And yes. she's making some special curry when she does. Where did your relationship start with your mother? Tell us about you as, as, kid, as a kid and your mother, how important she was. Yeah, I think that – so just to kind of uh, provide a little bit of context – my parents had a very traditional arranged marriage. So, and it was actually kind of funny if they, if my, when my mom tells the story, my dad had seen like, my dad and his family had seen like, I want to say a dozen different girls, but then they came to see, to my mother's house. And this is in Punjab, India in the 1960s, late 1960s. And right away he said he knew. And my mom was like, you know, they've had, a, you know, like a lot of marriages that have been around for 50 years, there've been some ups and downs. And she was, she was always, she always still says, I don't know what I did that day to get him to like me, but some like, and she doesn't say it very happily, but she says it kind of now jokingly, but whatever it was, he decided that he wanted to marry me. The families agreed 10 days later, engaged two weeks later, married. Did she then, want to marry him? You know, I think that at that point in your life, you, you, you know that you, you put your trust in your family and she, you know, you're marrying a stranger. You're saying like one does is that that's not what one normally does in that time of the year. In that place in the world, at that time, if the does that know, still it, happen? Oh yeah, absolutely. It yeah, it's it's the it's it's the, it's customary. Yeah. but you know, I, I think if you it's dial the norm, it, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's it's the norm still... now, not in the urban centers in like Delhi and Bombay and like some of the bigger cities, but it's actually there's a term for it. There's it's called a love marriage. A love marriage is 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 almost somewhat kind of taboo because that means that the children chose themselves. So they said, oh, you had a love marriage as opposed to an arranged marriage, which is more typical. Um, but now I think love marriages, which is for most of us a normal marriage, is are are more um, happening more and more in the urban centers in India. But in, in, in any case, yeah, my parents had a very traditional um, arranged marriage. But I think the interesting part was that then, like right after, within a month of getting married, my mother got on a plane for the first time and came to America because my father had been here. So she, you know, kind of left her family, left all that she knew, and ultimately had three kids. I'm the youngest. And I kind of always looked to her to, you know, kind of be a, a, um, a source of strength and a source of um, inspiration. Because, you know, when you leave your family and you come to a new country where you don't know anybody, she, she had a master's degree in English from Punjabi University. So she spoke English, which was, you know, uh, obviously she didn't have to learn it when she came here. So that was a big, very um, helpful, that was sure. very helpful. But she ended up in Rochester, New York. Because my father, like many Indians at the time who had come over to America, was an engineer. And he worked for Xerox Corporation, which was headquartered in Rochester, New York. Um, and so she showed up in the dead of winter wearing a very thin sari, you know, seeing snow really for the first time in her life and was kind of understanding how to live this new life. Um, ultimately, they transferred to Xerox. Saris are not really the sort of... The yeah, exactly. It's not really snow. keeping you nice and warm. So, um, but then ultimately, they transferred to Dallas, where I was born, um, and they still live there now. Um, and this summer... In fact, they'll be celebrating 50 years of marriage. And, and so, how many other Indians were there, there? You know, at that time, it's it's not a big community. And I know we're going to get to this, which I'm excited to talk about. But my father started, um, he started working for Xerox, had a family of, uh, at that point five because I was the youngest. And then he looked around and he recognized that not only was there not a single Indian restaurant in the city of Dallas, but there wasn't an Indian restaurant in the state of Texas. So he opened, ultimately, while he was still working at Xerox, found a space and opened the first Indian restaurant in the state of Texas. It took off, was a wild success, ultimately quit Xerox and became 
you wow. know, just a restaurant guy. It seems and like that's what the Indians, the Chinese, they did all over the United States. I mean, my wife, Chrissy, who yeah. you know very well, her family came to America. They looked for a place in America where there were no Chinese people deliberately. They went to Alabama. They went to Mobile. And they opened the first Chinese restaurant. And then they also opened the Chinese laundry, things that Chinese are stereotypically known to do. Right. But they did it because there wasn't one. Yeah. And it made an incredible success with the businesses. And then it started, you know, eventually having the largest Chinese or well, largest laundry business in the southern states of, Alabama, of, of, of America, actually. Wow. In multiple states. Wow. Um, doing military orders and, and everything else in between. So, you know, with, I got these incredible pictures with them with like sort of 50 Model T Ford cars with chin laundry written above the top. Oh, wow. And, you know, so they, it's it's very interesting. It's, it's funny, sort of stereotype over these these stereotypes: Indians, Chinese. I'm I'm part Sri Lankan, yeah. so I sort of fall into this. So I don't. So if I, I'm not trying to speak out of turn, but but uh, but ultimately, you know, when you think of stereotypes, what was it like growing up as as a sort of a young Indian boy in Texas? Yeah, it was super interesting because well, the funniest thing that I always joke about is that I, all like in my one individual body, I was cowboys and Indians personified. Because Cowboys are very Texan, and, and, and the Dallas Cowboys, where we grew up, was like an iconic football team. Um, but then I was this Indian kid, and I think the best way to describe it is, as a kid growing up... But Cowboys uh, and Indians is not the same kind of Indian. No, right? that's the thing. But I was kind of, I would joke to say, well, I am Cowboys and Indians because I'm an Indian amongst this sea of uh, right. Cowboys. But I think the best way to describe it is, as a child growing up, I would always have two birthday parties. My birthday's this week, in fact, so I'm, you know, like, and we've se celebrated many of my birthdays together. We have. But um, this, w as a child, I would always have two birthday parties, one for my school friends, you know, the people that I would hang out with during the week and on, on you know, after school, et cetera. And then I would have a second birthday party for my Indian friends because my Indian friends didn't necessarily go to my school, but my parents made a concerted effort to build a community of other Indian families in the, kind of in the Metroplex, you know, in, in so... We, it was, this is how the Indian Mafia works. By yeah, the that's way. how the Indian Mafia works. And so I think, so I always kind of grew up really feeling very connected to my um, heritage. And I, I wouldn't say I was proud of it, I was connected to it. Because at that time, you're so focused on trying to just fit in. And, you know, and were you not proud of it? I think I was probably less, much, I can say with certainty that I was less proud of it than I am now. I think at that point, you know, I didn't understand when my mother would wear a sari to the open house at my school, and it was the first time, you know, everyone's parents were intermingling, and, and they, she would wear a sari, and I wish she wouldn't, because... You were embarrassed? Yeah, and I wanted to fit in. You know, it's, it's, it's hard enough to be a young kid, or, you know, a sixth grader, eighth grader, you know, et cetera. You kind of want to fit in, but then I think ultimately you kind of realize that your specialness is what makes you fit in, and or makes you kind of in some ways bubble to the top because now I look at her and I've kind of, you know, and I look, I, mean, I have this very close relationship with my mother, as you mentioned, and I'm so in some ways in awe of, you know, the, the life that she has led, including my father too. But I, you know, I have this very, I have this closeness to my mother. There are certain ethnic groups which assimilate more than others. And certainly the Indian community in my, from what, what I see, doesn't assimilate that well. They sort of stick to themselves. They have their own groups. They have their, there aren't that many mixed Indian, uh, Caucasian families uh, as there are in many other different ethnic groups where they, where they mix more, in my opinion. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not a fact. But certainly you know, the Indian community is very strict. And growing up even as a young Sri Lankan English boy in England, I, we, I had the weirdest thing because I wasn't either one or the other. Yeah. 
So, yeah. I, so the Sri Lankan community thought I was weird. Yeah. And then in the English community thought I stood out. Yeah. So there was nowhere for me to go. Exactly. You, you're, you're, you're not Indian enough to be Indian, but you're not American enough to be American because you don't look like what you might consider an American, especially in the 80s when you're growing up in Texas. So I think that that was a bit of a like identity crisis that I, <clears throat> that I certainly um, face. And then you throw on top of it all that, you know, I was very deeply closeted at that point, you know, and I, and, you know, even definitely to my family, um, but even in some ways to myself, because I, you know, it, we're not, it, this was not 2019 where you had a lot of role models on television and elsewhere. And so I really was even more kind of, you know, isolated because I didn't really understand how a person could actually be Indian and gay. Like it didn't, it didn't actually compute. You know, but you don't brain. define yourself by being Indian and gay, do you? No, you, you don't define your, I definitely do not, but I definitely, but you, you work with what you're given. So you have to be comfortable with what you're given, right? So I had to be find comfort in, in, in and pr pride in being Indian, but then I, it, it wasn't even pr uh, pride in being gay. It was just comfort. It took me a long time to feel comfortable because I kind of didn't want to disappoint my Indian family. I didn't, I didn't have any role models. I didn't really understood that Indian people, could they be gay? You know, because I had never seen another Indian gay person until I moved to New York City. And then I realized, oh, wait, no, there's legions of people that look and, you know, and understand, and understand my, you know, what I've been through. And so it, it's, that's, you know, I think more than anything, it just is a testament to exposure. And now what's so nice about the stories that hopefully are being told in our current day are stories that kind of have a way for people to see themselves in them, um, even more so. Because for me, it was definitely something that I just really had a hard time understanding. So yeah, I don't define myself as Indian gay, but I'm I am, and so it's you know by definition they kind of are part of who I am. And you are one of the most confident people that I know. I mean, I I don't think of someone who's insecure. I don't yeah. think of someone who, you know, doesn't know what to say or finds finds you know is awkward in, in in any kind of given scenario. Actually, yeah. And when you think about your background, Indian gay from Texas. That's a lot of crutches right there. There's a lot of issues yeah. you, know, you could imagine. Yeah. You could, but but it's, you know, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't think. I would think you were born in New York or born in San Francisco and yeah, yeah. You know, grew up with all the support you needed. And right. Lots of people of your color, your type, your you know, your um, ethnicity. You know, I, I, but obviously not. No, it was it was actually. I mean, and not to like focus too much on this, but it is interesting to think about the the power of exposure because. When I told my parents that I was gay, it was, as you might imagine, from parents who just, I mean, everybody wants the best for their child, but all they saw was a lot of unknown. And they saw a lot of heartache, both for themselves, but as well as probably for me. They also saw a lot of embarrassment that might come to them. And so it was not an easy... Um, Did it manifest itself in anger? I mean, it was anger, anger and it was misunderstanding and it was let's not tell anybody else, even though we have a, you know, a close family. Um, and so there was a lot of shame, I guess. Shame and also questions about, you know, my mother said, did I not put you in sports enough? What was like, how did I cause this, et cetera? And you kind of you kind of let everybody emote, if you will. But then you kind of realize that ultimately, like, and this is what's so amazing as, as time is, you know, we, we talk a lot about how time is the best healer ever. And now flash forward many, many, many years. And my my family, I think probably, arguably, definitely Nigel and Chrissy like my husband more than they like me. And so, no. you know, and so. That's not true. <laughs> exactly. I, I like you both the same. <laughs> exactly. No, but it's true. But now even right. my, my right. own right. family, my Acceptance. parents, 
yeah, it's, 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 I was just visiting my parents and um, in Texas, where they still live, in Dallas, and they have, we did a family photo once many years ago, and my parents went to Costco and got it blown up huge and have it over there, um, a big, huge picture of it. And both my brother and sister married other Indians. And so other Indian Americans like us. And so they've got, you know, beautiful Indian families. Both of them have kids now. And so there was this big thick picture. And in the middle of the picture is this big six foot two white dude. And I said to my parents, because my parents entertain with the Indian community, they'll come over. And I said, Mom, like, when you have your friends over, you know, 95% of whom are Indian, and they look at that picture and they see, like, you know, do they ask, like, who's that who's guy? That, who's that guy? <laughs> like, who's that guy? Because one of them does not look like the other. Why is the FedEx guy in the picture? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you know that somebody, like, kind of jumped in? And so, but my mom says, like, of course, all everybody knows because, you know, they talk about their children. But she goes, she was like, I show my family with pride. Like, this is right. my family. Yes. And so, like, it's just so nice, yes. to, you know, as, yes. as opposed to you what... You were about to do an Indian accent. I was about to do you an were, Indian you accent. Held, you held back <laughs> I did. the body language. Oh, <laughs> I my, why what is the problem? <laughs> this is my family. This I'm my very family. proud of my family. You know, like, but it is actually, it, it is amazing because I, if I die, if I dive deep, I can bring myself back to what it was like. And there was a lot of um, pain, but now I stand on the other side of it. And so that's where I think, if anything, being a role model and even having this conversation and having people listen to it is all the more important because you kind of recognize well, that. Well, forgiveness is a big part too. And for, I think you yes. are very, a very sort of open-hearted, you know, forgiving individual. And listen, everyone makes mistakes. And I think that's a, one of those beautiful things. And I've met both of your parents yeah. many times at your home, shared many meals with them. Yes. And, um, and you celebrate your folks. You celebrate your parents. Yes. Uh, uh, there's this great, what is it? A, is it a sofa or a seat that you have made of your mother's yes, salaries at yeah. your house? Well, it's actually very funny going back to um, my, like the, 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 that phase in my life when I finally came out and, and, and told my parents. Um, my mother said to me, and I will do my Indi her Indian accent, um, she said, and this was actually so funny because only Indian parents who are so, and, and I think probably many different parents, but definitely I can relate to Indian parents who are so bold and don't really like care who's in front of them with what they say. So imagine you're in front of my sister is there and my sister-in-law. So like two other women are right there. And my mother says to me in her tears, as I've told her that I'm gay, in front of her own daughter, she said, but I was saving all of my best saris for your wife. My sister, first of all, was like, oh, what the fuck? What about me? <laughs> what, about like, me? what about me? I'm sit mom, you know I'm sitting right here. And I can actually wear them. And like now you found out that I'm not gonna have a wife, but she was saving all her best. And so I, in my like infinite wisdom, just to kind of keep like everybody happy, I was like, Mom, don't worry. I'll still figure out something to do with the saris. And I ultimately, she did send me some of her beautiful saris and I turned them into chairs. Like I used yeah. them as upholstery fabric. And now you have seen them in the, my apartment and, and it, they are probably the most spectacular pieces. And I was lucky enough to host Michelle Obama for lunch. And, and we had to clear out a lot of the furniture, you know, because of secret service protocol, et cetera. And we needed more space even. But I said, I'm keeping these here, the sari chairs. There's two chairs made from saris. And I pointed them out to the former first lady, and she has a big love for, you know, family, but also a big love for culture. And she said, will you, and this is the most amazing, from a woman who gets her photograph taken every mm. single day, hundreds of times a day, she said, will you please take a photo of me in the chair and send it to your mother? And so oh, I have nice. this great photo of Michelle Obama sitting in the chair that was made for my mother, sorry. But somewhere, 
in Atlanta, Georgia, is my sister who's pissed off to be like, yeah, yeah, what, what you, the hell? But, Where's but, my sorry? But as you yeah. said, you'd figure out something to do with it. you figure so, out something to do. So, so hey, let's really make a chair out of it. And then, hey, just to top it all, just put a little bit of the cream on top. Let's have the former first, first lady, lady sitting sit in, in it. Yeah. And I think it's really amazing. And my mother beams with a pride when she comes to visit and she'll see these chairs. And, you know, it's kind of become a family joke. Because, of course, my sister doesn't need more saris because, you know, she doesn't wear them that often or anything. But just the fact that, you know, I'm the baby and my mother was but like, it's these sorts of personal touches. I mean, listen, you have. I mean, we're not even talking about it, and I love it. But you have this incredible uh, business, MKG. You put on the, some of the most amazing events, and that's how we kind of met. I yeah. was w- absolutely blown away by an event I went to of yours, and we met. And I'm like, who is this guy who's who's putting on? Who's got this sort of mind that can do this and, and really bringing things together? And it's those sorts of personal touches, like the chair made of your mother's saris, that just has this story that's built in and. How important are those personal stories, those personal moments to any event, large or small? Oh, it's it's critical because, I mean, essentially we are working with people, a population throughout the world, but definitely, you know, kind of people that consume media. We are working with people that have the shortest attention span ever, right? I mean, everywhere you go, people are distracted, they're on their phones. And so when you invite them to your home or you invite them to an event, those personal touches are the only reasons that you can get them to connect, are the only way I would say that you can get them to connect. So for us, for my company, MKG, as you mentioned, which it does brilliant events for brands. So we work for really great top brands from Google and Netflix to Target and Delta Airlines and all figuring out what kind of how, how they can connect to consumers through experience, through events. Um, and so for us, the personal touches, the, the, the touches that make an event super special. Are well, you don't ones. think Netflix and personal. You don't think Delta and personal. Well, I think that that's what's interesting. Is so when you think about um, <clears throat> Delta, we will personalize events in a way that kind of makes you reconsider the airline because they are so personal. So we will have real-life flight attendants working the events, and they'll be walking around with beverage carts, the same ones that you're used to seeing. And you create, recreated the first-class lounge on, yeah. on West Broadway in yeah, Soho, exactly. and that's when I first went in, and I was like, I actually was so blown away by the transformation of the space, I actually asked the ridiculous question of whether this was going to be a permanent structure, yeah. whether you would actually, this is permanently being transformed, yeah. and this was now Delta's flagship sort of store in Westport, which of course it wasn't, it was just an event It was just an event, yeah, so I mean, we do things like that. I mean, just this past weekend, in fact, we're just wrapping up, we did a huge event for Barbie's 60th anniversary, so the 60th anniversary of Barbie. I didn't get um, an invite to I'm that sorry one. about that, yeah, well actually Jasmine probably should have gotten that invite. Um, but we will. It's like that's happening to more and more. You know, I, yeah. clearly, fear and fear ever, ever since exactly. I moved upstate, you know, exactly. I don't even get invited to the but, Barbie party. Exactly. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, we, you know, it's those kinds of things. But now what we're doing with Barbie is we are celebrating womanhood and we're celebrating kind of female opportunity. And so it's a very different story, but we'll have really nice personal touches and really iconic women that. that and Wes Ken. We don't talk about Ken. Barbie stands on her own. Barbie doesn't mean a man. It's poor a, Ken. Yeah, exactly. Poor Ken, Ken. is just rejected Ken's left once again. Side. I know, really. Seriously. It's kind we of funny how everyone talks about Barbie, but yeah. Where's Kev? We yeah. don't talk about Ken. I love the yeah. fact that you He's know not who part Ken of the... was. It's one of the only pop culture things you've ever known. That's Ken. So funny. He never knows anything, and that's brilliant. <laughs> Actually, I'll also have you know that when I released my Afraid to Fly Bluegrass album, I got... Ken Dog. Got my my sister to get my twenty year old sister to get all her friends to dress up as flight attendants and push trolleys around. Oh really? And we had a flying 
We hadn't afraid to fly. It was on the co- album cover and things. And I got them all push- pushing the... Really? was the only place I could find the outfits was Anne Summers. So they had to have, they had to have really long legs and sort of huge, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, it, oh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was problematic in the end. Yeah. But, yeah. No, but I think that, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm big into this. Just very similar to the events that Manish Very does, similar, <laughs> yes. Well, I am very big. But going back to what you're saying, I'm, I'm hugely interested in and how to make something personal because to... I, I find, and, and you know, you have been to my home a lot, and it's. I find that it's such a joy and honor to bring people to your home, and when you when you invite them, it should be a memorable. Okay, experience. but you don't just have a dinner party. Okay? I've been to dinner parties and, and everyone's houses. You have a, and I say you know, say a soiree, a salon, you know, wh- whatever. The the point is, is you you have this very special gift of matchmaking and maybe it's an Indian thing yeah. right uh, and you talked about bringing the Indian community together you do that very well in your parties as well because there's always a nice dose of, of yeah. the Indian the Desi crowd there yep. but it is also brilliant whenever I'm there you know that there's two or three people that I should probably connect with and, and my wife two or three people she should connect with yes. and you sort of go around the room and you connect all these people and I have now friends of mine who I call friends which I don't make friends when you're sort of my yeah, age, yeah, yeah. you know, very easily anymore. Yeah. You know, you make acquaintances and things, but I, you've actually managed to sort of, this guy will be great for you. This woman, she's got something interesting. You guys should communicate on this level. And then the, it's just extraordinary. That is an art form in itself. How do you do that? It's so it's so generous of you to, to, to speak of it in that way. And, and I, I absolutely love doing it. And you are right. It's much more of a salon because... Listen, I can seat 12 people at my table, and for me, it becomes puzzle pieces. Because, you know, so with Andrew and I, my husband Andrew, there's 10 open seats. And I was like, I want to get 10 curious, not just interesting, but interested people around the table. Um, some who might, you always want some people who know each other to kind of be, you know, to, to break get the ice. The, yeah, to break the ice. And, and so some people, don't, not everyone feels a little bit on edge. But then I get really fascinating people who I am lucky enough to meet throughout my journey of the day and throughout New York City, I would say. And I put them around a table and we kind of see what happens. And But what you mentioned happens a lot. People actually love meeting one another. And I feel like such a um, it, it's such a cool opportunity to be able to bring these people together. Um, so I love it. And now I've kind of taken it to a whole other um, level, as you might have seen on my Instagram, I don't know. So I'm not a great cook, and I don't cook. So I'm lucky enough. But you to, always have great chefs. I always have great chefs. So there, so people eat very well. But since I'm not, so so I can't ex- express my artistry through cooking because I I'm lucky enough to have great people come in and and prepare the meal. The way that I'm now um, expressing my artistry is through what I now am having a ton of fun with, which is just designing really amazing tables. So I will now kind of, I've kind of gotten, and I think this started because I have a, a, a weekend home in Long Island and it just kind of became fun. I was like, oh, I'm going to like set the table with all blue stuff or whatever it might be. It might, I would theme it out. But now it's kind of become where everybody just wants to come to dinner. Everyone loves a themed party. Everybody loves a themed party. And you know what? If you set the table properly, and when I say set the table, it's not fancy. It's just like fun and frivolous. And But I, I there's kind of might be a theme to the table. But as soon as you come to the table and you see it and you're like, oh, wow, like, Somebody's actually put some energy into you know, thinking about effort, this. Made an effort. Yeah. Made an effort. Suddenly, and it's it's absolutely true. Phones go away. The meal becomes less about being utilitarian, like I need to feed myself. It becomes more about of an experience. About let me actually kind of sit back, put my shoulders down, and relax, and enjoy what is in front of me. 
not just the food, but the people, and not just this beautiful tabletop, but the whole thing, it kind of takes on, time kind of stops. And it's hard to do that if you're just kind of throwing a stack of plates and a stack of forks and napkins, and you just like, everyone grab it for yourself and then kind of go on your way. So I have now very purposely, and it's what I do in my home in New York as well, is I just say, I'm going to do this thing. And now I have this hashtag that I use called Tabletop by Manish. And I will just, and now Andrew, my husband's like, are you becoming like one of those crazy cat people where you collect? Because everywhere I go, <laughs> I start collecting napkins and placemats and, and all different stuff. No, that you're I'll becoming just, a housewife. I'm becoming, it's kind of true. I was like, am I becoming a housewife? He's like, he's like yeah, but it's kind of, I, it's fun for me to have a hobby. You know, I've kind of, later in life, I've developed this hobby where I will just say like, all right, I'm going to have, a table, but I'm going to, you know, like we went, if we traveled to Africa and I found all these great things from Africa, then I'll maybe have the chef make some menu items that kind of connect. I mean, I went to Chile once and I brought back bottles of water from the Andes mountains. And Again, like, it's these details. Though, it's the it? details. And I say, hey, we're having actually Chilean water, you know, with, with the meal tonight. And like, you know, it's these kind of, and people just are just like, wow, this is super. Well, I remember it was my, my birthday once and you found out about it. It just so happened to be that I was coming to your house. That's we hadn't right. talked about it. We hadn't said anything. I get to your house. I walk in. And you're like, oh, hi. You know, give me a hug. And you just, I sort of just turn casually to look across the tabletop, and right behind the, di the dining yeah. room table yeah. is literally an homage to me. Yes. You've gone to, <laughs> to, to, to the internet and found all these pictures of my sort of life yeah. and blown them up, cut them up, stuck them on the wall, happy birthday, and it was a thing. It and was I was thing. incredibly humiliated, incre incredibly <laughs> delighted Amazing. and touched. Nice and it was fun. unbelievable. It was yeah. so thoughtful. And I've never forgotten it. I've got to say, it's one of my favorite birthdays I've ever had. And it was so unexpected. And it was so totally. nice because when I realized it was your birthday, it's like, okay, instead of just doing a cake with candles, what more can we do? And and because your family was coming, your kids were coming, Chrissy was coming, it was just, I was like, let's do this like Nigel wall. And it was, and it's fun. I mean, it, it didn't take, you know, that's the thing. It doesn't, it takes as much time to probably, you know, either make a cake or get the cake and like, et cetera, as opposed to just, you know, like, be adding a little bit of creativity. And those personal touches, I think, are, are paramount to giving us somebody an experience. And, and I'm, you know, like, listen, they say that millennials now care much more about experiences than, than tangible goods. And I'm definitely not a millennial, but I will always say, like, I want to experience where we are. I want to experience each other. I want to put our phones down. I want to mm -hmm. kind of get yeah. in. Like when I travel, I said, how do I be a traveler and not a tourist? You know, like how can I actually have an experience? And so that's a lot of what I think about it because I'm not so interested in like for all of us, time is very tight and time is very short. And ultimately, you know, it's our it's it's the least common denominator that we're all working with. So if you are going to have dinner with somebody, then take that time away from your family. Right, take course. that time away from rest because rest is super important. If you are going to like make that effort then it's got to be an experience. And it doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't need to be over the top. Like, I'll find stuff. But let's, and just... but let's give you the caveat here because you happen to, you know, this isn't just, I mean, absolutely, you, you do the, a lot of this just yourself at home, whatever. But you have a business that does this and you have a business that makes props and That's sets. Right. Yes. And you've taken it to a whole other level. You're yes. like, okay, these personal details, I, we need these personal details, but yes. I need them now and I need many of well, them. But, but, but the, you have to a be fabrication fair, company. I have a fabrication company where we build sets. I, so both my event company and my fabrication company are both in New York and LA. So I am, you know, like I have, but like, just to be clear, I moved to New York City after a newly minted degree in public health 
and I used to think I'd have a long career in the NGO nonprofit sector. And I moved to New York, got a job in nonprofits, and it was good. But ultimately, now what I think young people call the Sunday scaries, I used to get the Sunday night blues. Mm. And I was like, oh shit, do I have to go back on Monday? And I, you know, like I had to dig deep to 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 find this ambition to say, like, you know what? I have no experience in marketing. I, I like events, but I've never worked in the business. I have no contacts in this business, but I think I'm going to enter this business. And so ultimately, yes, it's exciting that I have this great event business, but I, I had, in some ways, I had no business. And I remember getting a phone call from my mother and her saying, Manish, are there any other Indians in this business? You know, they're freaking <laughs> out in Texas saying, like, you've just gone to these, you know, I went to good schools and I have all this student loan debt that I need to start paying back. And like, I, you know, like, I remember my father saying, can't you get a job at the UN? Like, because it was just like, you know, I would have been marketable perhaps for like, you know, an entry level job at the UN. And and for him, you don't pay taxes if you work at the UN. And so he was kind of thinking for me, I said, maybe I could, but I don't know. I think I want to try to build an event business. And I didn't know that I was going to do it on my own initially, but then I started to realize that clients respond to me. I'm good at client service. And and I mean, and it's a funny story, but it, it is a funny story. It's I a see. story that could only happen in New York City, where my first client was Sean P. Diddy Combs, and, and, and that was just. But it seemed to be yeah, almost by accident. It was almost by accident. I, mean, I didn't know him, and I, I'm not. I don't come from the so music industry. So let's talk us through that. What happened there? You were pretty much new to the business. You were setting yourself up. You, in fact, almost interning. It yeah. Seemed. So, so I mean, it's it's a. I'll try to tell you as shortly as possible. But this was the summer of 2001. So it was like life was still good in New York City in the sense that like it was pre 9-11, but just months, you know, ultimately right. weeks before 9-11. And I get a call. I was, I kind of decided I want to try this business. And earlier in 2001, I was collecting unemployment, you know, getting a check, getting the dole basically. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And I was going to, um, and, I, and I got a call from somebody to say, hey, listen, Sean Combs is throwing a party for after the Video Music Awards, the MTV Video Music Awards. Can you help put together his party on? Do you want to be like one of the production assistants? I was like, great, you know, like get paid an hourly rate and I would be a production assistant. It was literally the week before 9-11. I go to the event. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously on site for the days leading up to it. I'm working my ass off. And I the event is a huge success. And I remember taking a train home after that event saying, I loved being in that room. Like, I don't always want to be the same person that I was, which is somebody who was way down on the totem pole, like moving boxes and just helping stuff set up. But at least I'm in the right room. And I can, if I work hard enough, I can figure out, I can change who I am in that room. But I the got, toughest job is doing but that I, kind it, of thing. It's just get, yeah, and I got into the room. A week later, 9-11 happens. The whole world changes. And I'm sitting at home, unemployed, trying to think about what I can do. And like, but I have, you know, 9-11 gave me the resolve to say that, even though the first thing to dry up are, are parties, yeah, events, events yeah. and nobody wants to seem garish or, you know, it's a time of healing. So they were drying up, but I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to this. Like there's, things are going to bounce back and this is the business I want to be in. In November of 2001, I get a call from Sean Combs office. They knew me because, you know, I was working on the event, but I get a call from Sean Combs office and they say, Hey, listen, we want to talk to you about doing Puffy's New Year's Eve party in Miami. And I said, excuse me? And they said, well, listen, he's throwing a New Year's Eve party in Miami at the Shore Club. Do you want to do it? And you thought and they I had said, the wrong number. And I said, excuse me, you called the wrong person. Like, I didn't do that event at Tau. Like, it, the, the event, the, vi the video musical party was at Tau. I said, I didn't do that event. I worked on that party, but, like, other people were. And they said, listen, we know who you are. We saw you, your work. We like you. 
do you want the event or not? And like, so like, just to like put some frame of reference here, I'm like in my mid twenties and I have never been to the city of Miami before. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I assume like any place I'd ever been that Miami is cold and you wear jackets and turtlenecks in December. And so the next thing I know, I said, okay, listen, so you weren't I'm, very I'm, good at geography then. Yeah, exactly. Was I was not, not very good skill. at geography. But I was smart enough to say, listen, I've got to call the person who brought me into the original event and tell them about this. They, of course, said, listen, you can do this, but you're doing it through our company. I said, okay, fine. So I end up finding myself on a plane to Miami. I'm bringing turtlenecks and jackets because I thought it's cold. It's December. You know, at that point, it was early December. It must have looked and great in Miami. I show up, and they immediately send me to the studio to meet with Sean Combs. And Sean, like literally Puff, you know, as we call him, Puff was like, you're fucking making me sweat. What are you wearing? You know, like and I had no idea what I was wearing and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I was so in over my head. And he wanted the event to be fashion after Catherine Graham's black and white ball. So it was meant to be a black and white, you know, kind of like a one world, like, you know, because again, this is, you know, a few months after 9-11. So but it's also at the Shore Club. I didn't even know what the Shore Club was. I was like, is that a club? They're like, no, asshole, it's a hotel on Collins. I was like, what's Collins? Collins is like the main strip in Miami. And I ultimately, like in the, in the probably 48 hours leading up to the event, I actually, and I think about this now sometimes when I'm in hyper stressful situations, everybody was coming down on me. And it was so intense. And I remember thinking like, Manish, regardless of what happens over the next 48 hours, almost down to a molecular level, the blood will continue to flow in your veins. You will, you will You'll continue to breathe. You will survive. You, there, you will see hour 50 after the next 48. You will be alive. Right. Like, who knows what's going to happen between... But I had to kind of bring it back and say, like, okay, the blood's going to flow. You will stay alive. Sure. You will be a human being at the, at the end of this. And by the end of this, it was a fucking major success, a huge event. MTV broadcast it live, and like at one o'clock in the morning, Puff looks over to me. He's like, "Hey, listen, man, you fucking did it. This is a crazy event." And I basically kind of knew. I was like, "Okay, I can, I, I can do this." And 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 I was like, January third of two thousand and two, I was coming back to New York in the airport, and somebody stopped me, and they said, "Hey, was that you? Like, do you just do Puff's party, his New Year's Eve party?" I was like, "Yeah, that was me." And they said, "Wow, that was fucking amazing. Like, do you have a card?" And I remember saying, "No." But I'm going to get a card. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to figure out. And so that's kind of how I started my company. That's amazing. And, so, and then from there, I just kept putting my head down. And for you know over 10 years, I just had my head down, building, 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 never took really time off. And, and then I started to say, like, well, listen, I'm spending millions of dollars to get sets built. What if I start a set shop? And build we, build, we build our own sets. And so that's, that's how Pink Sparrow is the name of my set company. They're based in, in Brooklyn and out in L.A., and so now we have a set company. And then as I started to develop more brands, I said, or help more brands, I said, what if I had a brand strategy and design shop? And that's 214. This all boils and down to how controlling you are. Exactly. How controlling I am and how I don't let anybody. Yeah, but it's also. It's By also, the way, just, this, is a, this is a true story right here. How, we've had almost 20 guests on Shaken and Stirred. We've only had two pre-calls with guests. Only two <laughs> yeah. of the guests have asked to speak to me in advance of the interview, just to, so we can talk about what we were going to do, what the questions were going to be asked. Control. Both, both people 
are Indian, first of all. <laughs> it says something about a culture. Yeah. And Manish, of course, is one of them. And, and he actually sent me questions, which, of course, we haven't used any of them because we haven't needed to. Of course but, it was, but it was just, I love it. And uh, listening to you right now, here you are in the event business, and you're like, okay, wait a second, I need to control the design. I need to actually build yeah. it as well. I, yeah. need, I need to touch every aspect. In fact, we're going to come up with the idea. We're going to throw the party. We're going to do all of it. It's called being a successful businessman. I mean, it's it like Henry, Henry Ford did that. And he That's bought, right. He bought, he bought forests to make the wooden crates to send the parts around. Exactly, it's all was, vertical integration. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think that that's it's an old it's an old system. I mean, it's yeah. been around for what it's it, been around, and now I think about how I can, you know, like wh wh where where my opportunity, um, like wh when I look at the the lens of opportunity, I always think about okay, well, where is there new opportunity that I haven't been looking at? Like simply, there can't be. There aren't obviously enough parties where it's all about judging salads exactly for <laughs> because good segue yeah because who on earth I said the future is the Cotswolds exactly yeah. so, so have you got a card I, I don't but I will <laughs> I will get a card um, so you have these crazy parties the salad toss off parties yes in it's 11th year it, in it's 11th year and so this is the funniest because we all can kind of at your know, home, by the way, yeah, I have been a judge at one of these parties. I mean, you take it to a whole nother level. This is a party where people design salads to show them off to be judged by a panel of judges, expert judges. Some you may or may not know. Um, we have little outfits, judging outfits, and these salads are not just salads, no, people. They're they are they're works creation of art. They are, works of art. Yeah. It is like taking salad to a whole nother level. It is the salad toss-off party. And I took my mother, because, you know, Manish has his mother. Yeah. My mother's Sri Lankan. She loved it. She came down. She's looking through the salads. And I will never forget this moment when she was digging into this salad. And, and as she was looking at it, and she was, and you try the salad. You actually get yeah. to eat the salad. It's not yeah. just looking. You actually have a try the salad. And she was like, I heard this sort of scream. And I'm like, what? What, what? what was that? And she was digging. And inside was a sort of French dip in the middle of the bowl. And inside of it was a blow-up doll with an erection. And she was grabbing. And she with, with like with, with, with like sort of chopsticks, she was trying yeah. to pull the willy off this blow-up doll, which was inside a French onion salad. And suddenly she had realized what it was. And she was like, oh, Nigel, there is a willy inside the salad. <laughs> like that. And I was like, Mom, what do you mean? What are you talking about? She's like, look. And she pointed down to it. I was yeah, like, oh, my God. In fact, there is. Well, the whole point of the salad party is like that salad not, did not win. By that the way. salad did not win, but there are concept salads, performance art salads. They are these are not regular salads. These but what are, made you think of creating that party? So, that so here, here's the thing: is I wanted to throw a party where I could invite a bunch of people over, and I could basically have a a, a party without doing much work. And so in Texas, where I was born and raised, as I mentioned, if you want to have that party, you have a chili cook-off because right, everyone brings sure. chili and mm -hmm. chili is very big in Texas. And so, you know, growing up, there were oftentimes in chili cook-offs. In the South, by the way, in, in general. The that's that's, not even that's just not Texas. Thing. That's throughout the South. Correct. Yeah. The American South loves a chili cook-off. So I said to myself, and this is before I've been with my husband for 11 years, so it, it predates him by one year. I said, okay, well, listen. I'm a single guy in New York, and I you want to throw a party. At the, at the I did not. Off, did you? No, but I. But I said, okay, what is the gay urban version of a salad toss? Of a chili cook-off? And I said, I know a salad, salad toss-off toss because you know we all kind of know what a salad toss is because of Chris Rock and like Quite. You know, yes, toss my salad, <laughs> yeah, toss my salad, and so. So I said a salad Tom is, toss. Tom is, Tom is nodding now very Because it's got a double oh. entendre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I can. Yeah, I can yeah. <laughs> so, so because of the double entendre, I thought it was funny. And I said, listen, I'm just going to – it started super small. Probably like 20 people came over, and there was a few salads, and I had judges. 
But now there's probably 70 salads. Now, now celebrity, page yeah, page six, right? Wall Street Journal wrote a whole story about it. And the prizes we give are really spectacular. So the first prize salad gets two first to, class. Trip to South America. Yeah, or first you class anywhere in the world on, on you know, in, in for, on Delta Airlines. And like, so we will get like really great prizes. Like, you know, our friend Alvina will give, you know, when she worked at Louboutin, we'll give Christian Louboutin stuff. You know, like we will just get. I don't get, remember the judges getting anything. Yeah, judges do get something now. You got to come back. <laughs> I don't get invited back. That's yeah. why you're not invited. Yeah. Exactly. Party, I just, you know. There seems to be a trend here. Something Maybe you're is, not getting invited. No, Hashtag. He's not, less, it's not happening, as I said before, less and less because out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. He's upstate now. Forget it. No he's problem. a country boy. And also, you know, if you invite him to anything, he's not going to come anyway because he's going to be upstate. So. Yeah, he's going to be upstate because he's yeah. got his, you know, the, everything's upstate now. You know, I have time for a salad toss <laughs> You always should and will have time for a salad toss. You, your personal parties, things like salad toss are unbelievable. Your dinner parties are, you know, amazing. But your wedding was something that has burned an, an indelible <laughs> impression into my mind. And I don't think I'll ever be able to go to any other wedding ever without comparing it to yours. Obviously, you're Indian. Everyone knows Indian weddings are formidable and multi-day affairs. Yes. But a gay Indian wedding in New York, done by Manish Goyal, yeah. the event party planner extraordinaire, took it to a whole nother level. Not just did you start it, okay, it was a traditional, at your house, it was nice, it was, you know, we had the henna yeah, on our hands, yeah, and yeah. it was very sweet and intimate, and I'm like, wow, this is so intimate, so personal. <laughs> Followed by the next day, I'm like, honey, where are we going the next day? He's like, oh, the Rainbow Room in New York, one of the most fabulous dancing venues you know, in the center of on Rockefeller Center yeah. at the top with the views of the whole city. And it was just unbelievably laid out to so the following day where you have it at Chelsea Piers with hundreds of people <laughs> and you arrive on a boat with dancers <laughs> dancing all over the boat. I mean, everything short of having sort of elephants yeah. sort of parading. You did it. What was that like to do your ultimate party? Well, you know, what's so funny is that when I think about like when you think just for me personally, I said to some friends, I said, well, listen, like culturally I'm Indian and Indians do big weddings, as you said, like multiple days. And, like the wedding is like the pinnacle, the center. And then let's say socially, I'm a gay guy and, and gays love to party and they love to put together parties, et cetera. And then professionally, I happen to have a very successful event marketing business. So you know, culturally, socially, professionally, like that. that that's basically like, that. boom, yeah. <laughs> like this was not to be messed with. And I had a, like, if, if there was going to be, uh, if there's somebody who's going to have this wedding, I was going to be the person to have this wedding. And it, the, the sweetest part about it is my husband, Andrew, is, you know, we are, we are a true testament to opposites attract because he's kind of like, yeah, cool, whatever, I'll show up. Like he, he kind of didn't really have like so much, um, burning say. desire no he had to say i would give him a say but he kind of only had to say so I, he could say yeah sure honey whatever but it was kind of amazing because he you know he kind of really is so easygoing that he was like yeah whatever you want i'm sure you you do great stuff it'll be awesome and so he was pretty low-key about it no, he looked actually shocked almost as shocked as i did at everything that yeah was exactly every time i looked at him he was sort of like looking He's around going like picking up the forks and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what's this what's happening here you know, even when he arrived off the boat, he looked so stunned. Yeah. You know, it was his, so, the look on his face and the photographs, his eyes are so wide. Because we literally, so, you know, the, the funny thing is, is at an Indian wedding, traditionally, the, the man <coughs> arrives on a horse or an elephant, you know, and is met by the, uh, the bride's side. 
So I said, okay, well, listen, in this case, when you have two grooms, what do you do? And I said, well, how about we arrive, since we're getting married, or since the big party's at, at Chelsea Piers on the water, instead of being on a horse or an elephant, what if we're both on a boat coming down the river, and then we enter and we dock, and then we're all like, the, the boat was strewn with like garlands of flowers, et cetera. So it was kind of like, people, and people didn't know where we were coming or how we were showing up. They're all waiting for us to arrive somehow, and then suddenly this boat comes down <coughs> the river, blasting like you know like music and all of us are dancing on it they're like oh my god those are there they are there's crazy guys yeah i know it's unbelievable i mean it was very fun you know what one of the things that was so special about it and i think again this goes back to just the types of parties you throw is is that you can have a huge affair it can be full of all the sort of special effects and you know obviously you know money's being spent whatever the location you know no expense spared however it was the personal elements to it that made it so magical. And of course, it's a wedding, and it is a very personal moment. It's a very poignant moment in a person's life. And you know, there was that moment where your father yeah. got up and yeah. gave a little speech, and it was you know, both. I think it was difficult for him to do, um, but it was a very sort of unusual moment too. Yeah. You know, for everyone there because they all felt directly connected to you at that point, and, and as if they were your family. Yeah, I think because. It was in some ways the most, it was, yeah, because the, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it goes to show that somebody who's a planner cannot plan, right? Like cannot plan everything. Everything. Yeah, cannot plan everything. And so in, in this case, we did offer my father the opportunity to speak and he had some things he had to say. And he chose that time to say, and it wasn't against me per se. And, and, and the thing is, is the family really heard what he was trying to say. I think the people in the audience, and he waited until he had the biggest audience. So he waited until the, you know, the several hundred people on, on, on the last day of the wedding. And I think they just probably maybe thought he was drunk, but he hadn't had any alcohol that day. They thought maybe he was joking, but he, he really wasn't joking. Were you hurt by his words? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if I mean, like... I stood up, I mean, if you remember this, I, I stood up, my sister stood up, my brother stood up, and we all went over and took the microphone from his hands. And so, like, it definitely, you know, like, so these are the things that... But it also made know, it like, very real. It made it very real. It made right, it very so, real. So, as a, sorry, as coming in on this, as a listener, let's say, um, your father stood up and, and it didn't get, so it wasn't a... So he wasn't necessarily, he was, he well, had... He was almost disapproving of a gay wedding, I think. Well, I think that there's many ways to interpret what it was, but he was also frustrated at my mother and he thought that was the time to you know talk about that he was also frustrated at some of his family wasn't there and but because i you know like i felt like i had reached out to them and told them about a follow-up event that we were going to have but he was frustrated that he didn't feel like they were being included he would but all things that i felt like you know like it wasn't the time or the place for him to air his frustrations um, but do you know what the, the interesting thing is? And this is obviously not to put a downer on such an incredible day because it wasn't. It was the most unbelievable. Yeah. But for me, in a way, that was a crowning moment because the way you all handled it, the way your friends and family gathered around you. Yeah. And even that moment, it, it humanized everything. Yeah. And it, and it sort of that's actually the real world. And that's the real world. And I think that that's, you know, it, there was a lot of pain and a lot of um uh, healing that had to happen for the whole family after that because you know there was a lot of question about why that moment and why those words but your father and, was still invited I've seen him at your parties still. yeah yeah but listen I mean there but like a week two weeks later we threw a little reception in Atlanta because at the time my husband was working at Delta Airlines in Atlanta 
and my sister lives there and she, she called him and asked him not to come to that you know like so there you know that was too fresh so yes he's definitely still invited because he's still my father and you know like there'll always be questions that i would have you know i could have never imagined you know my mother watches a lot of bollywood films and she said in every bollywood film you've seen every kind of strife portrayed where the parents don't like the chosen spouse of their partner the parents don't like the in-laws the parents have beef with you know like with their own family but you've never seen where somebody will go and kind of do this to their own child you know like where where you you would kind of take this moment of you know when when we had planned so perfectly etc so like you know there was a lot of question as to why he would choose that moment to to say what he had to say um but i mean clearly things aren't black and white you know yeah sort of scenarios You know, and it's, it's hard to ever get inside someone's mind. And, That's right. I mean, in fact, you know, you live by that motto. I mean, you, you have a, a, a business yes. or, a, or, or an enterprise yes. called Live in the Grey. That's right, yeah. Which is all about the, the shades it, in between black exactly. and white. Exactly. It's all about, you know, if, if work and life are black and white, then it's not about kind of this, in my opinion, antiquated idea of, of work-life balance, of balancing, but it's about work-life blend and finding work that makes sense for your life and having a life that makes sense for your work and kind of finding this middle ground of, of, of being in the gray. That, to me, is the most interesting place to live. And, and I think that that's probably where I'll always be with my father, you know, like in that gray zone of kind of knowing that, of course, he loves and supports me, but he's also, you know, I'll probably never know exactly what he's thinking. But, you know, that's, that's part of being an adult and, and having adult relationships. Um, so, I yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very – but, you know, I think – the you know the thing that is happening now that I in some ways I say is an homage to my father even is I'm in the process of opening an Indian restaurant in New York so it's almost like a homecoming of sorts because my father as I said and there surprisingly this, aren't enough Indian restaurants in New York surprisingly there, are. there really aren't which is so interesting because you would imagine well, in growing a city up like in England York, there are Indian it, restaurants everywhere yeah and I think in England because you know like. A, the palate's different of, of British people, but also you just have such great variety of Indian food and different places to eat that, you know, I look to England to say, like, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we don't have the same palate and we don't have the same relationship to India that England does, but it, it feels to me like there's kind of a white space. And so I have a really exciting project. That the time you make on. that a brown space. Yeah, exactly. We're making that a brown space. So, yeah, basically a very cool, hip delicious way to have Indian food that hasn't really, like there hasn't been a modernization in my opinion. Do we have a name for this restaurant yet? Not, not one that we're ready to say yet, but we have one that we're- Whereabouts in New York will it be? In Flatiron on 20th. And will it be, will it be um, Indian, I mean, food from India? Because all those Indian restaurants in England, None of the curries apparently exist in actually exist in India. In India, that's right. Yeah. In England, for... right? No, but in this case, we are definitely our chef is from um, Mangalore, which is a southern state in India. Um, but it's going to be coastal Indian food, lighter, fresher. It's going to be more seasonal. You know, oftentimes Indian restaurants just have a menu that is so no tandoori never, chicken. No, we're not. We're going to instead have like a hickory smoked tandoor chicken. With like a with a glaze, hickory be, smoked tandoor yeah. chicken, yeah, with a salad with, toss off. Yeah. Listen to that; it's going to be delicious. It's, and like, delicious. it's going to be actually, but it's still you know cooked in a tandoor, like a clay pot oven, and it still will have all the right flavors. It'll just be a little bit more a inventive, but b um, kind of more more modern, more current. So it's not a fusion restaurant; it's definitely an Indian restaurant. Will we have bumpy wallpaper? 
bumpy wallpaper. We will have, you know what's interesting, you know, to talk about the wallpaper. What we are doing, and I'm super excited about, because again, in Indian restaurants, sometimes it might feel too ethnic or it might be off-putting to like the passerby or to the person who comes in. It might be too transportive. What I want to really create is like a super hip, cool, uh, super hip, cool New York City restaurant that happens to be Indian. And so the the inspiration that I'm taking with our designer for the for the restaurant is, and a lot of people don't know this, that the second highest concentration of well, first of all, where's the highest concentration of Art Deco? Miami, I would imagine. Miami. So Miami South Beach right. has the highest concentration of, of Art Deco architecture in the world. The second place in the world that has the second highest concentration of Art Deco architecture is actually Mumbai. And so Mumbai has this amazing history with Art Deco that has is somewhat unknown, but Bombay Deco is like kind of this whole period that's beautiful. Sounds and like so, a Bollywood movie in itself. It, it could be, in fact. But we are really taking inspiration from kind of like a deco phase, which isn't what you would think of when you think about India right now. So there will be, in some ways, more pastels and like, you know, we're not going to go neon, but like we're going to do it in a much more kind of open, airy way. Um, it's going to be beautiful. Sounds incredible. I yeah. just love the thought of that. It's yeah, like, exactly. And, it, and it's all very authentic to India, but just not in India that you know or that you might experience when you think about, you know, more traditional Bollywood. And so, or like, so we're not going to have like hot pinks and turquoise and orange and yellows, you know, which oftentimes not which the are Raj. beautiful. Yeah, not the not the British Raj or like the, the Indian ruling Raj, you know, like we are going to instead have a, a little bit more of an understated, chic, um, very cool um, India. So, so yeah, the restaurant is a big project that I'm super excited about. I'm excited to bring it to New York. Um, and I've got a really fantastic team that I partnered with on it. And, and if, then, if anyone can do this right, Manish, it is you. You've just thrown the most extraordinary parties. You bring people together like there's no tomorrow. I hope you are maitre d' at least for a period of time. <laughs> exactly. Because when people get there, they've got to have the full Manish treatment. Manish Goyle, MKG, Pineapple Co., Restaurant to Come. Thank you so much for coming on Shaken and Stirred. You're the best. Thank you. Chin, chin, old boy. Mm-hmm.